Father, we come before you this morning as your children, looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say to us through your word. We ask that as we read, that we would understand, that you would illumine our minds so that we would be able to take away from, um, from our, our time together an accurate view of who you are and what you've done in our lives and you've done in the lives of people in the past that we can learn from. And we just ask this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Last week we um, went through chapter 1. We learned about the story of Samuel's birth, but more than that, um, we learned about Hannah and her faith and her uh, belief and trust in God to answer her prayer, and God did. God remembered her. That was what he asked. He a- she asked, God, please remember your servant. And at the end of the chapter, we saw that God remembered her and gave her a son, Samuel, and she gave him back to God. The beginning of chapter two is a song of praise of Hannah, and she, um, she exults in what God has done for her. She has seen God actively work in her life. She has seen God care about her as an individual. And that just results in this bold expression of praise to God. What a wonderful example for us when we see God at work, that this is, is, shouldn't be something we just go, okay, amen. And we don't tell anybody about it. This ought to be something that is part of our lives, that we are turning this into praise to our God. So the homework that I um, suggested for you was to take a look at verses 1 through 10 and um, fill in the blank. My God is, what did, what did Hannah say? And so we see all these different aspects of God's character about what God does in um, these first 10 verses, and we learn about our God from what Hannah knew about her God. So we'll take just a couple of minutes here to just do some review. I'd like to hear from you as to maybe some of the things that you spot um, or spotted um, in that. If you, if you didn't have a chance to do it, take and just scan through those, those first 10 verses. Some of them will pop right out. Some of them maybe take a little bit more thought. But who, um, who has some things that they observed in those 10 verses? And tell us the verse and what it was. Yeah, Hutch. Good, good. So we, he, so Hannah calls God her rock. Hutch is taking away that from that God's trustworthiness. Lisa and I were talking about this one yesterday, and that word rock is really descriptive. What does it mean? And I mean, it's a metaphor, right? And so maybe somebody else had a slightly different take on what that meant to them. I think that's good. I'm not disagreeing with you. I thought stability. I start, I, you know, it kind of goes into that trustworthiness, you know, that that, um, you know, it's like a foundation, something that you can stand on. All right, other ones. Bob. Yes. That's excellent. God is a God of knowledge. Verse 3, he never had to learn anything. I love that. What else do we gather from these? Ty. 
verses six to eight, all kind of has this idea about like flipping things on their head, raising people up, bringing people down, and it's just reminiscent of forming it again his own experience from chapter one of someone who's had nothing and God yeah. raised her up. Yeah, that's good. That's good. One of the commentators I looked at thought that, um, I think it's verse 8, no, I'm sorry, verse 7, um, the second half, he brings low and he exalts. And they pointed to this phrase as like a key phrase for the whole book, how God is going to push the proud down and he's going to lift the humble up. And we see that over and over again in this book. We'll see that play out. That's good. I summarized those three verses as God is sovereign. So God decides who lives, who dies. He decides eternal life and eternal death. He decides wealth and poverty. He decides who he humbles and who he lifts up. Others? Lisa. Verse 2, there is none besides you. He is God and God alone, and nobody is like him. So what are some words? That's excellent. Verse two. What could we? What words could we use that just describe those? No one is like you. There is none besides you. Only one true God. So He is exclusive. There's no one else. No one else exists. There's no other God that we can trust in. He's the only one. And not only is the on, is He the only one, but there is no one else like Him. He's completely unique. So unique and exclusive is what I took from from that verse. What else? Do a couple more. Marilyn. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger, and the barren have born seven. And then verse eight. He raises up the poor from the dust. To me, he's just a compassionate God. Very compassionate God. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of feeds into that knowledge, right? I mean, God knows what we need. He knows that we're needy, and then he meets those needs. He's compassionate. He cares about us. That's excellent. Anyone else? Yeah, Hutch. Knowledge. It also says that he weighs our actions, so he knows our motives for the things that we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of a word picture there, right? His, uh, by him, actions are weighed. So it's like he's putting our actions on a scale and he's weighing them and he's thinking about them. And so God is thoughtful about what we do and he's looking through those, those actions and he sees the motives for why we did, did what we did. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. So God is a judge. Verse 10, he judges everyone. Think that this is happening in the period of the judges, and yet Hannah is saying, you know what, God's the one that judges. He's the one that decides who is right and who is wrong, and he's going to reward the righteous and, and uh, punish the, the wicked. All right, these are really good. I appreciate you participating. We're giving, Mike, uh, we're giving Dan a workout on the microphones. We're trying to switch between my mic and the other mic. So just give us some patience here. We're trying to keep up with that. 
All right, so as I take from this, um, just some words that are used in these, verse ten, th- these 10 verses, and I kind of take away and I say, if you are feeble, hungry, barren, dead, poor, lowly, or needy, then you need Hannah's God. You need to know him like she knew him. And a wonderful illustration for us of someone who knew their God. And then at the, at the end, we talked a little bit about this, at the end of verse 10, um, the, the second half, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She's looking forward to the time when there will be a king in Israel. There wasn't one yet. And she looked forward to that um, as something that was coming. I'm doing a little bit more reading this past week. Um, made me think that I may have overemphasized the word anointed last week. It is the word that is used for Messiah, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Hannah was expecting the king to be the Messiah. Perhaps that's true, but it may simply be that she was expecting a king who would be anointed by God, so he would be chosen by God in that sense. Uh, But either way, she's clearly looking forward to someone who will rule the nation of Israel, and we know that ultimately that's what Jesus will do for all of us. All right, let's move on to verse 11. So, verse 11 says, after this song of praise, then Elkanah went home to Ramah. So this song that she just sang took place right there at, um, at Shiloh, in, you know, probably near the temple as she was worshiping God before they decided to go home. This was after she is giving Samuel to Eli for his um, guardianship. And the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. We're going to see sentences like this that pop up throughout this chapter, so we want to keep an eye on this as to what the writer is observing Samuel is doing. And what we see that he is doing here is ministering. Where he's doing it was in the presence of Eli. That's kind of interesting. Okay, so Eli is the, he's the priest, the head priest at, the, at Shiloh, and Samuel's doing probably some menial tasks at this point as a child, and he's ministering in Eli's presence. But who did he minister to? He ministered to the Lord. So he's ministering to God at the temple um, with Eli, his guardian. All right, let's move on to verse 12. If I could have someone read, uh, read for us 12 through 17, nice and loud, 12 to 17. Okay, Ty, thanks. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling, they three pronged fork in his hand, and he thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. And if the man said to him, let the fat burn, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, 
and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. All right. So we had been introduced to um, we had been introduced to Hophni and Phineas in chapter one. They're not named here, but they're named the sons of Eli. And we're going to see a contrast between sons, between the, between the two sons of Eli and the son of Elkanah. And that contrast is going to go back and forth through this chapter. The, the writer is going to tell us some things about Samuel, then it's going to tell us some things about Hophni and Phinehas. And, and, and the, the method of instruction here is to show the truth by contrast. So that's really the focus here. As we go through these verses, we're going to see how Hophni and Phinehas are characterized. They were sinful abusers of their authority and being in the office of priests. Um, they're described, first of all, as being worthless. So older translations might have sons of Belial listed here. Worthless means just like it sounds. It means useless. It means without value. So who were they without value to? It's a little bit of a trick question. <laughs> certainly God, their father would be another one. One more. People, that's right. The, the people that are coming to worship are not being served by the ministers, the servants that are at, um, that are at Shiloh. So ironically, flip back to chapter one for a second. I, ironically, the same word is used in chapter one in verse 16, Hannah is speaking to Eli after he is thinking that she's drunk and says, she says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Same word. So don't think that I'm worthless. Don't think that I am um, without value. I am not drunk. I am pouring my, out my heart to God. So th their first description is they are worthless men. The second in verse 12 is they did not know the Lord. Here's their fundamental problem. Their fundamental problem is they did not have a personal relationship with Jehovah God, the God of their covenant. They probably knew a lot about God because they knew all of these things they were supposed to do, but they didn't have a personal experience with him. Think about this. These are men that are probably in their 40s, 50s at this point. We know that the, the way that I get there is that Eli died when he was in his late 90s. Samuel is just a boy here. There's some lapses of time that we don't know how long passed. But let's say that maybe Eli is 70. So he could easily have children that were 45, 50 years old. These are not intrepid teenagers that are you know, making youthful mistakes. These are fully formed men who are against God. There's really no other way to cast it. They don't know God, and so they are doing what all of the people of the time are doing. They are doing what's right in their eyes. And what's right in their eyes is make me happy. Take care of number one. Take care of myself. And you think about this. They had been in and around the temple at Shiloh their entire lives. Their entire lives had been spent in the shadow of their father, ministering, watching him do it, being taught how to offer a sacrifice, all of the regulations that they were supposed to do. And yet, here they are, fully grown men, and they don't know God. How sad is this? 
they don't know the Lord. It, it just made me think about how it's easy for our children to be raised in Christian homes with parents that love God. Mom and dad love God with all their heart. They serve, they read their Bibles, they witness. And yet the children don't know God. They may come to church their entire lives and they don't know God. And at some point, it's going to come out as it did with these guys. Every generation has to know God for themselves. And being in and around church isn't enough. They have to experience God for themselves. We see ministry failure. The custom of Hophni and Phinehas was to take boiled meat. They would take raw meat. They would do things that were wrong with the, um, the sacrifices. We won't take the time to go into it, but the priests were allowed they were expected to participate in the, the, the sacrifice from the standpoint of receiving part of it as food. It was kind of part of their compensation for doing the ministry um, work. But in Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 7, God was very specific about the portions of the different types of sacrifices. There was different portions that they would take for different types of sacrifices. He was very specific about that in those chapters. Here's what the priests get. Here's what goes on the altar. Here's what the worshiper gets in some instances. And what's clear from these pass what's not clear from this passage is what kind of sacrifice they're talking about. They don't, I think the writer doesn't talk about it because it's not important. What's, what's important is they were not following the regulations of the Old Testament Mosaic law for what portions of the sacrifice they were entitled to take. You know, for example, in, in Leviticus 7.31, the law mandated that the fat of the sacrificial animal would be burned on the altar. And that was like the first thing that needed to be done. And in them taking the raw, the raw meat, they were, um, they were directly violating that regulation. Now, as we sit here in our 21st century minds, we might think, really, is that a big deal? I mean, so they cut it up different than, you know, one way than another. And okay, they took this piece instead of that piece. They took the front leg instead of the back leg. God had given a very specific command, and he expected very specific obedience. And who are we to question what God requires? What was the penalty for this? Leviticus 7 says that the penalty for violation of sacrificial offerings was that the offender would be cut off from his people. In some context, this phrase is used, and it's very clearly clear that that's a death penalty. So God took this really seriously. In other instances, it looked like it, it might be like exile. So either way, those are, pretty, those are pretty substantial. Here we see the priesthood benefiting from the people in ways that, were, that God never intended. They were taking advantage of the people. They were living off the fat of the land, so to speak. And we'll see, so the word fat is a, is a little bit of a play on words. We'll see in the next chapters that Eli was heavy. He was, he was a big man, is what it says. So he was directly benefiting from these offerings, and he knew about it. We'll see in a few minutes. The conclusion, we see God's view of Hophni and Phinehas is their sin was great before the Lord because they treated worship with contempt. That's God's conclusion. 
God holds worship of him in high regard. This is something that is important to him. Let's compare now. Look at, what, um, look at how Samuel's described in these next few verses. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So here we see Samuel again verse 18, ministering before the Lord. He was serving. As I was reflecting on this, I, I realized I was kind of expecting the writer to say, but Samuel knew the Lord. So taking this contrast back and forth, but he doesn't. He says that Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 3, we'll see a verse in, in verse 7, it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So there's a reason why the writer didn't say Samuel knew the Lord's because he didn't. He didn't have a personal experience with him at this point. Yes, Cuppy. She is and then brings it to, to Eli. Is that common in those days? You just drop the kid off at the church and say, yeah, you raise them. And would you give your sons to somebody who wasn't raising their own sons, right? <laughs> so those are good questions. I, I don't know of another instance in Scripture where... We, we see this happen, where someone just dropped their kid off at the temple, you know, kind of like uh, on the doorstep of the adoption agency kind of thing. I, I think it's pretty unusual circumstances that were born out of Hannah's prayer um, and her, her vow to the Lord that this was um, what she said she would do. Um, I've wondered about how much Hannah and Elkanah knew about Eli, and you know, we'll see in a few minutes, it says all of Israel knew what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They knew how bad it was. So I'm led to the conclusion that they must have understood that there was wickedness happening at the temple, and yet they trusted God. This is what they did. They trusted God. God had answered her prayer, and she had trusted God to answer that prayer. And now she's going, so she she trusted him for, she trusted God for Samuel's birth. Now she's going to trust God for Samuel's life. And I just think this is an incredible act of faith on her part to, to leave this child with Eli, who all appearances doesn't look like he did a great job raising his kids. I say that a little hesitantly because every kid makes their own decisions. And just because kids are bad doesn't mean the parents did a bad job necessarily. I mean, parent, you know, parents could do a great job raising their kids, and their kids could still make bad choices. It happens. We all know people like that, right? It appears that Eli did a better job as guardian of Samuel than he did with his own children. But it is hard to, it is hard to, to get our head around how someone would do this, I think. It's a good question. Wasn't... Uh wasn't going to be saved. I mean, it wasn't God's plan for that child to be saved. It may not be God's plan that these two guys would know the Lord at all. Yeah. Well, we'll see what God has to say about that. A few minutes here. Yeah. 
Yeah, clearly God's plan plays into this, obviously. So just a couple other comments about Samuel here. Um, he has this linen, linen ephod that he's wearing. This is a close-fitting sleeveless vest. It goes down to about the hips. It's like the work attire for priests. You know, so as they're dealing with sacrifices, this is what gets messy. Um, underneath that, he wore a robe that went to his knees. This is what um, Hannah made for him. It was worn under the ephod. And I, I love this... Um, you know, the, the God, you know, in 21, God visited Hannah and she conceived and, and, and gave, God gave her more children in answer to her prayer, really, you know, that, that, that she have children. God just blessed her. And you think about how she prayed. She said, God, remember me. And in end of verse one, it says, God remembered her. And God remembers her again and again and again and again and again. Five more children that God remembers her with. Wonderful blessing that we see from God. In verse 21, we see another one of these um, sentences about Samuel at, at the end, um, end of 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord here. So we see um, before he was ministering in the presence of Eli, now this verse says he is ministering in the presence of the Lord, probably meaning that he's in and around the temple. He's very close to where the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. Not in there, but close to there. And so he is in God's presence. All right, let's move on to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. It just like gets worse like way fast. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So here we, we see Eli rebuking his sons. He knew what they were doing, and yet he was powerless to control them. At this point, things had gotten so far out of control that Eli can do nothing else. As I first read through this, I thought, well, Eli is in charge. Why doesn't he remove them from the priesthood? I think that's a fair question. I'm not sure, given his age, that he could have pulled it off. But I wish it said he tried. <laughs> it doesn't appear that he even did. It appears the only thing he's doing is saying, stop being bad boys. And it wasn't enough. Not only did Eli know, but everyone knew. I mean, everyone's talking about this. Eli pleads with his children, his two boys, to stop doing this. Um, Josephus, the historian, um, just after the time of Christ, so this is over a thousand years after these events, but he suggests that Hophni and Phinehas were forcing women and, and bribing some. So this, there's some commentators thought that, that Hophni and Phinehas were imitating the Canaanite um, practice of ritual prostitution. Josephus kind of 
disagrees with that. I mean, I, he's a long time after, so he's probably basing this on oral tradition at that point. But it just, again, further colors how bad the situation was. That these two men are taking advantage of the leadership position that God has allowed them to be in. And he's taking advantage of God's people to their detriment and, to, and not to God's glory at all. So the danger um, that Eli points out was sobering. He points out that when they're sinning against God, that there is no one to mediate for him, for them. Hophni and Phinehas reject the correction. They reject it because we're told, as Joan suggested a few minutes ago, that God had already decided. God had already dropped the gavel on them. The trial had been had. The evidence was in. The jury had come back. They were guilty. The judge had already decided what the sentence was going to be, and it was going to be capital punishment. It was just a matter of time until the sentence was executed. So we can see here a couple of things for ourselves. One is that God takes sin very seriously. He takes sin, the disobedience of God's commands, he takes that very seriously. And so it's, we're left for each of us to evaluate what things in my life am I not taking as serious as God is taking. Things that God has told us in his word, clearly, that we are to do or not do. And is our life conforming to that? Not only does he take sin seriously, he takes worship seriously. When we come together and worship God in, as a congregation, God takes that seriously. We shouldn't be doing it for our own benefit, we shouldn't be doing it um, for our own glory, to stroke our own pride. It should only be for him. And God takes it very seriously. We learned some things about parenting. It's not the, the main point of this passage, for sure, but we can make some observations about parenting. And growing up in a vocational minister's home is no guarantee of spirituality. There's no guarantee that kids are spiritual just because they grew up in the pastor's home, the deacon's home, whatever. Second generation kids need to know God just like you and I do. Every kid is a sinner. Every kid needs a savior. Every kid is capable of any sin that's ever been committed. doesn't matter if they're in the best environment possible. Environment doesn't save. Only Jesus does. And then a hard one, sometimes parents have to do more than just tell their children that they have sinned. Sometimes they need to take action. Sometimes it's not just enough saying, you've sinned, you need to repent, you need to confess. Sometimes the remedial action needs to occur. We could talk a long time and speculate about what Eli should have done, but we'll not. And then we'll see a con this, continue this contrast of correction we see how um, Eli tried to correct his sons. Now we see how God corrects Eli in this next passage, beginning in 27. Oh, let me, just, let me just hit that transitional verse for a second. In 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So he's growing in stature. He's growing up. He's getting tall. He's getting big. But he's also growing in favor with two bodies. One is God and one is the body of, of, uh, of, the, of the nation of Israel with man. Does this sound familiar? Does this ring any bells? I mean, just like, does it make you think of something in the New Testament? 
wasn't rhetorical. Yes, it's what the Bible said about Jesus. In Luke 2.52, says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we see God's blessing on Samuel as he ministers and he grows, and yet we don't see that he knows the Lord yet, but we see that God is blessing him. Isn't that interesting? All right, now we'll move on to verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, so he has God's word for him, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? So he asks a couple of rhetorical questions here. These rhetorical questions are, are aimed at family history. What did I do in the past? Did I reveal myself to your fathers? Well, yeah, of course you did. Did I choose your fathers to be my priests? Well, yes, you did. That's why we're here. So he asked these rhetorical questions. It's part of the message of this messenger of God who's unidentified. And now he asks some penetrating questions about personal sin. In the middle of 28, I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn? That word scorn means to like kick at my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So here he asks them specific questions about these problems with worship. Interestingly, he doesn't even address the immorality problem in this, and we don't know if the writer is leaving that part out of God's message, so maybe there was something said about that, but it appears that the focus was on the, the, the failure in ministry. And so he has a devastating conclusion for, um, for uh, Eli. Okay. Therefore, so we see the conclusion word, verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father would go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Does that sound familiar, those words? Back to chapter 2, verse 7. This is one of those things that Hannah was talking about, about the the humble being exalted and the proud being uh, pushed down. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with, an, with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So he gives, God gives this general rejection of Eli and his descendants as being priests before the Lord. Eli and his sons had forfeited the right to be priests for them and for their, their children. So this promise of priesthood is rescinded by the Lord. And then we see a sentence of punishment announced. And the sentence is, first of all, there's not going to be old people in your family. So what does that mean? That means everybody is going to die prematurely, as we would say. 
And if there is someone that is older, they're just going to be around so that they can grieve everyone else who died early. They're going to cry their eyes out. I mean, that's literally what it says. Weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. So descendants of Eli will either have violent death or devastating grief. And this next verse says Hophni and Phinehas will be first. And this, shall, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. This will be evidence that this is true. Both of them shall die on the same day. And so this sentence becomes really personal here. And we know from, from future scripture, from further scripture, um, that this, is, this takes place over a number of years. And you may remember that Saul at one point kills all of the priests at a location called Nob, and except for one, Abiathar. Those were descendants of Eli. And so this is where God starts to fulfill this promise in a very excruciating way. And Abiathar is removed from being a priest by Solomon in 1 Kings, and he sets him aside, and so here's the one guy who's left to weep his eyes out, Abiathar. And Solomon appoints Zadok, a different priest, to take over the priestly duties at the temple. And we see in Ezekiel that the, the line of Zadok is to continue in the millennial temple. So God has taken it from this line, all under Levi, all under the, um, the branch of Levi and uh, different branches of Aaron's line within that. But really, at another level of complexity, Jesus is the high priest, right? We know that from Hebrews. We know that Jesus is fulfilling all of those duties, having completely fulfilled the law and taking those requirements of sacrifice away because he was both the priest and the sacrifice. And then we see God selecting a new high priest, or new priest rather, sorry, strike that high word. God selects a new priest, verse 35, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what was in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed, there's that word again from verse 10, forever, and everyone who is left in your house shall come to, to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So what God says is, I'm going to raise up a faithful priest. What's he saying indirectly? You are not a faithful priest. You have been an unfaithful priest. So this primary characteristic of the new priest is faithfulness, obedience to God's law. So there's, there's sort of a near-term and a long-term fulfillment of this promise. The near-term fulfillment is Samuel is the new priest that's coming. The long-term fulfillment is Zadok in, in 1 Kings. So those two um, aspects of fulfillment of the prophecy are, are seen. So you might ask, well, how, how can Samuel be a priest? Because wasn't he from Ephrata? Let's go back to chapter 1. We have this lineage of Elkanah, his dad. Chapter 1, verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathane Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim. 
whose name was Elkanah. So, so we know that this is where the family's from. So how can you have someone be a priest who's from Ephraim? Is this like, like an exception, like kind of a Melchizedek kind of thing who, you know, Melchizedek was before the law? No, it's not that complicated. Fortunately, commentators help us out with things like that. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, there's some long genealogies, and in those genealogies is the genealogy that includes Samuel, and he, if you trace it back up, he's a Levite. So his family, Elkanah was a Levite, he was living in Ephraim, the, the city that he's living in is not a Levitical city, you may remember those from the book of, of Joshua, we studied that a couple years ago, um, so not quite sure why we have a Levite living somewhere where he's not supposed to, um, but that would be speculation to try to figure that out. Anyway, Samuel is a Levite, therefore he can be a priest. So it solves that, uh, solves that problem. Then in verse 36, we see the effect on, um, on Eli's immediate household. They're going to be beggars and unemployed. And we see that, um, that God is judging them and he's replacing them. We see that no one is um, no one is beyond God's mercy. No one is indispensable to God either. God wants to use us to do his work, but there's not a single one of us that God has to have to do his work. He wants to use us, but he doesn't have to have us. So here's our takeaways for today. Um, God takes sin seriously. God desires faithful, obedient service commend those two thoughts to you in evaluating your own self and your walk with the Lord. And the homework um, that I put on the sheet um, is to be looking forward and anticipating next week's lesson on 1 Samuel 3, which is a very familiar story of um, Samuel's call by the Lord. And I'd like you to read that in comparison with Isaiah 6. Um, Pastor Ty just talked about Isaiah 6 in our prayer meeting, so this will be familiar to you, but just read those and compare what God has to say to each of these men um, and what he asked them to do. There's some similarities, there's a lot of dissimilarities, but just I think it's a thought-provoking meditation if if you'd be willing to do that. All right, let's pray as we we close. Father, we're we're grateful that you are merciful and gracious, long-suffering, that you are slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And yet, Father, we read a passage like this and we see when someone rejects you repeatedly, continually refuses to obey you, that your long-suffering does have an end. And it's sobering for us, Father. And so we just, we just are so grateful for the blood of Christ that covers our sins. We're thankful for the, the, the righteousness of Jesus that we're able to have, and we just ask you'd help us to be thoughtful in our walks with you, that we would be obedient to your word, that we'd be faithful servants of yours, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.